Good morning, everyone. My name is Travis Ross, and I'm going to be bringing us the final message this morning on the book of Titus. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus, which is at the end of the T's in the epistle section, page 999. And there's a, there are black Bibles in the pews right in front of you. So if you don't have a Bible with you, we have them right in front of you. Take one and use it. Well, this morning, I'm, as I referenced already, I'm wrapping up the series that we've been going through over the past several weeks in the book of Titus. And I hope, it is my hope that you have seen just how much is in this little book. It is so packed with information on how, as a church, um, we are to live in very specific ways. Um, and I'm going to run through them right here. Eight specific ways that we have have heard how the gospel changes lives, qualifications to serve, the rebuke for the church, how we adorn the doctrine of our God in this way, and the appearance of God's grace, and how the meek shall inherit the earth, the priorities of pastors, and then today the final instructions for fruitfulness. Those Those are the things that we've heard about. Uh, from each section that we've broken this down into in in eight individual sermons. And I think throughout this book, I hope that you have seen how Paul is challenging us. Because as we've heard these individual messages, we have seen two ways. And Paul holds these two ways up before us. And he says, you've got one way that is by faith, that is to to, to live our life out in faith, faith in God. And then you have another way. Paul holds up, and he says, live also in faith of self. And he's showing you these, and he's contrasting, comparing, and contrasting these, and he's showing you the differences in living by faith in God and living by faith in self. And the differences of those are, by faith in God is gospel-centered, good works, living, pure, submissive, gospel-adorning, gracious, meek, church, unity, striving, fruitful followers of God. And that's what we see under the the living by faith in God. And then under living by faith in self, we see these insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, selfish, these liars, these evil, lazy gluttons, as he refers to them, who are detestable souls, unfit for any good work. So those are the two lifestyles and choices that we have to make as Paul is presented here in Titus in this tiny little book. Now, if you're anything like me, you like the sound of the first list, the first that's, you know, by faith in God, and you think, yeah, that's me. I live by faith in God. I display that in my, the way I act and live and speak and talk. But I don't notice that I oftentimes tend to live by the other list a lot more easily, and that becomes more natural to me, but I like to minimize it, and I like to hide it. Because I don't want you guys to know that I'm unfit, and that I'm foolish, and that I'm heartless, and that I'm, that I'm selfish. That doesn't feel good to me. And I'm probably not assuming too much that most of you can feel the same way. So I want to present a choice before us today that we can either live, choose to live by faith in God, by the simple ways that we see right here. Right here on these two pages. 
or we can live by faith in self. But it's not that easy, is it? We like to think by striving and hard work, we're going to get there, and that somehow, by God, God will just, He will be merciful to me. He will see how hard I'm working, and He will see that by my hard work, I'm living by faith. And then He will somehow be good to me. That's the sneaky little sin that I, I've been praying that even in my own heart, God would be able to purify and wash clean because that is the sin of pride. And it is my prayer here today that in these two choices, we will see that it is by the God's gospel that we can only be brought into that living by faith lifestyle, that choice that's presented in this book. See, the gospel calls us out of a completely self-centered lifestyle where we live in isolation from others. Even though we're with other people, we really are in our soul completely isolated. We really don't want anyone to know who we truly, really are. Because we're fearful, we're selfish, but we're called into this faith-filled life by a Holy Spirit-fueled partnership with one another in a church by the power of God through His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, and for His love for the church. And that's what I'm hoping that we're going to find today in this passage. In order to accomplish these things, we have to be learning little by little. That's important in this passage, is that this is a learning process. And we're not perfect in it. Because in this little passage today, it's, it's at the very end. It's a few, it's three verses. It's really short. It's not a whole lot of content, actually. But we're going to see a snapshot of the day in the life of Paul's ministry and the guys that he worked with and they traveled, what they did when they traveled together and how they would work in ministry together and what that shows us and reveals to us about their commitment and their love for the church that only comes from this Holy Spirit-empowered, fueled, gospel-driven devotion to the church. And, and this is what I hope we learn from God's intent in this passage today is that our gospel-devoted service in good fellowship is God's love for His church. Now, I apologize if that's kind of long, but I'm going to break that down into three points. And the first is that our gospel-devoted service from verses 12 through 13, our service in good fellowship from verse 14, and fellowship in God's love for His church in verse 15. And I'm hoping that this will make a lot more sense by the time we get through some of this. So let's read what Paul has to say to us from those verses. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 says, When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, and see that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith, and grace be with you all. So gospel-devoted service is what we're going to see first from 12 through 13. You see, Paul and this team of evangelists and preachers and traveling church planters, these guys are fellowshipping together through this partnership 
and this commitment to one another they have for going out, planting churches, working, and then appointing elders, and then moving on to another church. That's what's going on here. And we, we get to just, I love this, we get to see, you know, Paul giving some very specific instruction to these guys who are Artemis and Tychicus, some difficult words, some difficult names to say, who are working alongside Paul, ministering to the church here right in Crete, which is where this letter was sent to a man named Titus, who was really appointed as more or less the bishop, if you will, a leader over some churches on the island. And his main job was to get these churches started, to appoint some elders, and then back out and let these elders lead. Well, what's happening here is, is, is Paul is saying, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, well, Titus was actually going to leave and go back to where Paul was in Nicopolis, which is across the Mediterranean, in the middle of the winter. And we can learn more about these guys and what's going on here in more specific detail in the book of Acts. You can read also about this in Ephesians 2. I'm sorry, in Ephesians and in 2 Timothy, that these men, these men that he's talking about here, these were, all, these were servants they're referred to. Servants who were equal in ability and to faithfully and selflessly serve in these, these newly planted churches. See, these were fledgling churches. They were brand new. And they needed a lot of help. They needed, they needed this gospel devotion. And then we see more of this gospel devotion as we keep reading through the text in very subtle ways. He said, do your best to come to me. Well, you know, in those days, they were traveling by, by boat. There were no telephones. And they were writing letters. And so Paul knew it took time. And he had to be patient. And he's not saying be perfect. He's saying be excellent. Do your best to come to me. I think even in little things like that, that we've, this is... You know, this is God's word. Even in these little statements, we need to learn from that to do our best. To work together to, to nourish the church, which is what we see happening. And you can read, again, more about this in other letters in 1 Corinthians uh, 3. These guys working together to do their best And he's not asking for excellence. He's asking for their hard work to come to him so that they can continue the mission with other churches that are being planted in the area. This was the way of their life. And it's it's a fascinating way of life. It was a dangerous boat ride across the Mediterranean Sea to get back to Nicopolis from from Crete and and kind of that modern-day Greece area. And so the travel wasn't easy. It would, have been, it would have been much easier if they had stayed in Crete and somehow these letters were getting across to these other areas in the middle of the winter, which, by the way, in that region, in, in, in that area, the weather, the water in the, in the winter is rough. The seas were rough, and this was dangerous travel. <clears throat> but their commitment to the gospel is what drove them, and their it drove this ambition to see the gospel progress just a little bit further, little by little. And this, I think, is proof of what Paul is saying in, in the whole book about good works. 
the good works that Paul has been leading us towards, been spurring us on and been explaining, are little things, big things too, all kinds of things. But in, in this sense, I think we can look at this and see his modeling of good works is in the devotion that we see and in their even a desire to put their lives at risk to travel across the, a, a sea to, to go to one another to continue to serve these other churches. These are the good works that we're seeing being lived out right here in this passage. And do your best is what he's saying. So moving on into verse 13, we, we see again, do your best to speed Zenos and Apollos on their way. More guys who were serving alongside these, these fellows, Zenos and Apollos, more names. Uh, I, I don't think Zenos is mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, but Apollos is. Apollos is the guy back in the book of Acts where we, we know Priscilla and Aquila had to correct him a little bit in his, in his understanding of the gospel. And, and Apollos was a, he, he was he was humble and he was teachable and he he did correct his views and became a man of very uh, effective preaching and teaching a man of good words in fact I get ahead of myself and we just see such an amazing commitment right here in these these few little verses to the one another's, to the working and striving alongside one another. And Redeemer, I've got to say, this is a blessing that I see this happening in our church. I see this. Uh, I benefit from this. I'm, I, I know that you love one another and that you are committed to one another. And for the good of others, for the good of the children of this church, for the good of the elders, Something else that I thought about with this passage is that we need to be continually checking those priorities and analyzing what we're doing and, and trying to do the best with the time and the resources that we, that we have. And I think that's just important wisdom when we think about the, all the things that we have to do in our daily lives and the ministry of a church. Because that's what's really happening is, in the, is the ministry of the church throughout the body of believers. Um, it doesn't feel that way. But these good things that we do and these serving together is the ministry. And so I think it's important for us to not just fill our time in order that we feel like we're doing things. That's not the point. The point is, what is the best things that need to be done? Sometimes, what are urgent things that need to be done? And continually doing our best, as Paul is saying here. And don't beat yourself up over not being, not being perfect. That's one of my big struggles. So I, I think we oftentimes think we need to be perfect in this. And that's not what we're called to. We can't be perfect in the things that we do. And then moving on to 13, he says, See that they lack nothing. Well, this is more serving one another. Paul is calling Titus to see that these guys lack nothing as he's sending them back across the, the sea to find, to find Paul. He's saying, make sure that they are well provisioned for in this long journey, however long it might be. Make sure that they lack nothing. Make sure that they are provided for and taken care of physically and financially when they're crossing back over. 
So church, it's our responsibility to make sure that gospel workers, that our preachers, our teachers, our evangelists, that uh, the man that Caleb was, was praying for and his family, making sure that those guys who are giving of their lives are well taken care of. That is our responsibility to give our money and our time and our resources to serve them behind the scenes. And that's no less important than the guys who are actually on the front lines, who are doing the work of the ministry. So that don't look at it as something like, well, that guy's out there, that family's out there on the front doing something important for God, and we're back here kind of just filling our time, maybe giving some money. What everyone does to help aid that person and that group in the ministry is is the ministry. So William Tyndall, he was an English reformer before the Reformation was even popular in England in the early 1500s, before it even really started. And he was the one who translated the New Testament into English, the common language, because he had this desire for people to know God's word instead of just kind of blindly accepting what the priests had to say. And when he did this, the people were just so hungry for God's Word that they couldn't get enough of it. And these guys were actually translating these Bibles uh, by hand. There was no printing press at that time. And so they were translating each copy by hand for, for people within, within Britain so that they would have God's Word. So that could have benefited thousands, if not maybe a million people. We don't really know. To help them understand more about who God is and, and what he has for their life. And the reason I bring this up is because he didn't do this alone. He couldn't have tra- hand, you know, handwritten hundreds or thousands of copies of the, of the New Testament alone. He had the work of other gospel partners, of other men who were dedicated to the edification and sanctification of so many souls in that country. And then that sparked, that was part of the thing that sparked a real reformation over a century later, way after his death. And there were even many, many more people years after he died who continued to translate. And then they were able to start using the printing press to print more copies of God's Word. And that is, that is true devotion and dedication that these guys were able to, to work alongside one another. And I hope you guys have read that story in The Unquenchable Flame because that's actually where I got that story. It was helpful to me when I thought about an example, a little bit more modern example maybe, of, of some guys working alongside one another in a very practical way. So what we've seen in this section is that partnership, it's practical, and we're going to strive to do our best, and we're going to reprioritize our efforts for the care of, of others. So now let's take a look in verse 14 at service in good fellowship. So we see in 14, he says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So our people is referring to the people of those churches. Redeemer, we have our people. That is referring to the congregation and the body of Redeemer Church. That's significant because that shows us that we have a group of people that we, as members of this church, are called to serve, that we are meant to be devoted to, that it is our primary concern for these people, for our people, 
for everyone that I look out upon today and I see as part of Redeemer Church and those who can't be with us here today, those are the primary people that we, as members, are responsible to serving and edifying and loving and rebuking, if necessary, all of the things that we've learned about in this, in this book. That's not to say that we can't serve anyone else. That's not what I'm saying. But the point is that God has called us to specifically serve a body of believers that we've been called into. But I encourage you, serve elsewhere. Serve others. Serve widows. Serve orphans. Serve the imprisoned. Serve the people in your neighborhood. Serve the people that you work with. But it's more that we are specifically dedicated to one another in this church. That's what he's saying. And then he says, learn to devote themselves. I, I kind of skipped over, or sort of glossed over that word many times as I would read this, and I didn't realize, didn't think about the significance of learning um, to do good things. And I just kind of thought, well, it would come naturally. <laughs> it doesn't come naturally. It, it comes by modeling, and it comes by seeing others do it, and it comes by specific instruction from, from more mature believers, people who have been in the faith longer than we have. Coming alongside and helping the younger, less mature believers understand the importance of the things that we do and the way that we live and the actions of our lives and how we are, how we are living our lives. So an example of this, this past week, um, in, a, in a small illustrated way, Jared and I were building something, as we always do, and we needed some giant logs. And we thought, what better time than after a big storm, we're going to drive around the neighborhood and pick up some giant logs that fell out of trees. And so we pulled up to this guy's house, and an entire tree had fallen down in his yard. And we thought, oh, my gosh, it's the jackpot. We're going to get some of these giant, you know, they looked much smaller from the road than when we got up there to them. And so the guy came out, and he, he actually offered to cut some of them up with his chainsaw. And he said, yeah, sure, you can take some of these. And Jared was ambitious, and he wanted to grab onto the branch and pick it up and pull it. He didn't realize how heavy it was. So he grabs a hold and it doesn't budge at all. You know, I mean, it kind of lifts just a little bit on the light end. And I said, okay, Jared, we're going to do this together. You're going to grab the light end of the stick, the small end, and I'm going to grab the heavy end and we're going to pick this thing up together. We're going to carry it to my truck, which was just, you know, about 25 yards away. And he gets underneath it and he's holding it, you know, and I don't know, if the stick was 20 feet, it felt like it was 100 feet, I don't know. I thought, Jared isn't going to be able to hold his end of the stick, so I went into the middle of the stick, the branch. It was like a limb out of a huge tree, and he's at the end, and he's feeling huge because he's carrying this massive half of a tree, and I'm carrying almost all the weight, and I'm like, oh, you know, it's crushing me. But Jared is being taught how to do hard things, and I'm carrying the load of this burden. Now, I'm nowhere like God. I am very, very limited in my strength. But that's kind of how I think a little bit about the work that we do in the one another's of the gospel that we see here is that as we work and as we strive, we're, we feel like we're doing a lot, and we're carrying the lightest bit of the load, the very end of the stick, and the Lord is doing the work in the middle. And he's carrying that heavy burden for us in order that we might learn 
and the people that have gone before us in that, we get to watch them and see them and see how, how they have learned and how they have grown and how they have matured in their devotion to the gospel. I hope that illustration helps to serve you in a way of understanding a little bit about the work that we do and the devotion that we have. It's, we like to think of it as huge, and it is. But it's so small in comparison to what the Lord is actually doing in the midst of all of that. And then we see in verse 14, he says, Learn to devote themselves. So he says, let our people learn and then to devote themselves to good works. He's asking them to give themselves to, to make this what they're all about. To be sold out to good works. That's what this means, to devote themselves to. Of course, we have lives, we have families, we have jobs. We can't be out there doing good works all the time, right? But that's not the point. The point is not to just leave everything behind and head out and and just find good things to do for people. Instead, he's saying, make it what you already do. Make it part of your daily life. Whether it's at home with your children, whether it's, you know, in a conversation with with a spouse, whether it's at the grocery store, you know, with, with with a neighbor and your work at the gym in soup kitchens, doing Bible study together, whatever it is, Make your life about those good things and make the good things part of what you do. Make it about your life. But it is also about serving specific, real, urgent needs, isn't it? It's also, there are real difficult needs in people's lives. A few weeks ago or a couple months ago, Annie Foster became really ill and the Fosters really needed help. Uh, she went in the hospital. They have three young children, and they needed help, and it was urgent. Annie was really sick, and she was in the hospital for over a week. And so, what we saw, what I saw as a church, was urgent fulfilling the needs of someone else in this church, dropping things that was going on in their life, and making meals, and making visits, and driving things to the fosters, and cleaning their house for them. Guys, that's those are the things that I'm talking about here. But still, even in my mind, as I think about this idea of good works, I think what? I still feel like there's something missing in my understanding. I don't know about you guys. This is me because of my upbringing and where I, and where I came from and what I, my misunderstanding of good works is, uh, as, as, a, as a kid, as a teenager, even as a young adult, I, I had such a misunderstanding of what this was because we do live in a world where there are a lot of churches out there. Um, Caleb even mentioned the prosperity gospel in Africa. I mean, the prosperity gospel at its core is doing something of yourself in order to earn God's um, favor, and then you're going to get something back in return. But let's think a little bit specifically about this and what, what, I, think this, what I think this really means. Tim Keller writes that the gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. But you are more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. 
So the gospel says you were more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but you were more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. I think that's a good and humbling place to start when we think about works and what we do, because we are so sinfully flawed, we can't even imagine it. But we don't like to think that way. We like to think that we're basically good, and that what we do is good, and that it's acceptable and pleasing. So our good works literally come out of a sinful flesh. We are sinners at the core. We're born sinners, we remain sinners until we die. But there's something I want us to get in this, and we're going to get there, is that there is something that happens to a person's life called salvation, called turning from your sinful ways and learning to live by what God is teaching us here in this Word, that takes us even in our sin and replaces that nature with the nature of Christ and makes us brand new, makes us a new creature, makes us a whole new thing on the inside, changes all of the desires and hopes and dreams of our life and makes us in line with what God is saying through His Word. And then in some mysterious way, takes the things that we do in our, in our, in our day and, and, and in our weeks and the things we do for others and the things that we, we want to do good for others. And then he, through the atoning work of Christ and the sacrifice, his death on the cross that saves us, and he sprinkles the work that we do with his atoning blood and he says, now that's good. That same thing was not necessarily good before that. But now that's good, and it's not because of what you do, but it's because of what Jesus did before. What I call his good work with a capital G. Atones our good work with a little g. And so the good things that we do, it makes it, makes it some little small part of God's infinite plan of salvation and of redemption and of bringing a people for his own possession that he has had planned since before the foundation of time to be now zealous for good works. So, and even when I think about that, I'm like, okay, all right, what is it? What are some specific bullet points that I, I need to think about? And so I think about this, it's the heart. So once you're at that point, And it's like Jared carrying that heavy log with me, and we think we're doing the work, but God is really carrying the weight. It's the heart intent in which, and the context in which we do these things. So, simple things that we might do for one another. It's the heart intent. We might have a desire to help someone, we might have a desire to serve, but we really are selfish people. But you know, God in the capital G sense, turns that into a good work because it's sanctified in Christ's blood. Remember, we're not good. Only Jesus is good. And he performed the greatest work on the cross to make all believers' works good works with that capital G because of what he is doing. And so without Jesus' work on the cross, our works would continue to be splendid sins. So, 
when we do good works, whatever we do, whatever we do in the grace of God to the glory of Christ for the edification of others, we then partner together in the, in the love that God has for His church. Essentially, because God loves His church so much that He did send His only Son to die for it and then brought us into His church where we then get to turn around and do good things for one another and serve. And God is redeeming and atoning those good works. And that is a loving thing. That we get to be a part of that. And we're not left isolated and selfish in our sin. Uh, Kyle preached the sermon on how we adorn the gospel. 1 Corinthians 3 calls this precious stones that puts the gospel on display and makes it look really good. But our works are no works at all without the finished redeeming work of Jesus. He is our mediator, and he is what makes us and what we do acceptable to God the Father. And anything we do is only acceptable because of him. Titus 3.5 says it this way, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, so that those who have believed in God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. Devote themselves to good works. And I've come to understand this idea in the book of Titus as we've gone through this and heard many different ways that this can look as everything that he says from fulfilling the urgent needs of a family and a church to the rebuke, which seems hard, but remember it really is good. It's our perspective is what's wrong with the rebuke. That really is a good work because it's ultimately edifying and sanctifying the person who receives it and the person who gives it. And it may be done in a difficult way and it may not be comfortable, but it really is a good work. So service is not unfruitful when it's done in the finished work of Jesus. Paul finishes verse 14 by saying, not be unfruitful. This is judgmental language a little bit here. It's, it's not explicitly judgment, but he's saying unfruitfulness is a sin. And he's saying, don't be unfruitful in your work. There's many other places you can read about the unfruitfulness of our lives through the Gospels and different places. And Jesus cursed the unfruitful labors of, of Jerusalem in, uh, in the parable of the fig tree. So this, is, so this is to be thought of as to spur us on, not be unfruitful in our work, but to strive towards godliness in what we do. But remember, Jesus performed that good work, capital G, which he started for us, and that he carries out in and through us as we partner together by first accepting him as, as, as our Lord and Savior, and then, we, and then we get to join in this amazing thing of the church and do these things for one another and be a part of this partnership that we see here. And this is where the world gets things so backwards. And I used to get this so backwards. And many of us might have thought, we do something 
in order that God would recognize me as someone good and then God will save me. That is the backwards way of thinking. And I even remember experiencing this transition in my, my heart whenever I, I realized, no, it's, it's faith-fueled first, then Holy Spirit-empowered way of, of turning, our, turning that whole idea on its, on its head and reversing our thinking and realizing that our, our works and who we are and what we do can never be redeemed, it can never be restored, it can never be good without, the, without first the redeeming work of Christ. See, Jesus says in John 14, 12, that truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is how we can have confidence to know that the work that we do has, a, has an impact. It's not because of who we are. It's not because of what we've done. It's not because of what we can prove ourselves to be in God. But it helps us to realize that because we're sinners, and how I've tried to just pound this idea home, is that we cannot do anything in ourselves. But it still gives us this confidence because of what Jesus has done before us. And we can run to the cross and we say, God, I want to do something. I want to do good. I want to, I want to edify the church. I want to pray for the church. I want to serve the church. I want to be a part of this body of believers. But I don't know how. I don't even know if the little things that I'm capable of accomplishing in a day is worth it. But it's not because of us. It's because of the confidence that we have in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the good work that he performed, capital G. So moving on in verse 15, we're going to see fellowship is God's love for his church. Fellowship is God's love for his church. He says, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. It's just a final greeting, final farewell, but there's still so much there that can be gleaned from this little passage, from this little verse, and, and don't, don't, don't minimize it. Because this is where we get to see gospel fellowship that we're called into that allows us to experience God's love for his church that we are part of. That just amazes me. It's mysterious to me. It's so supernatural that we get to be such separate individuals who come from such distinct backgrounds and upbringings and difficulties brought into a body that God loves us through by making us a part of. Okay? It's kind of a confusing way of saying this. I, I, I hope to straighten that out. But it's only possible through the redeeming love of God through his death and resurrection that we are brought into a church, the church. You see, Paul's love for these churches that he was serving, Titus's love for the church, the churches in Crete, Tychicus, Zenos, Apollos, these guys were only able to love these churches and do these things because of this supernatural, mysterious, amazing grace and love 
that God had for them and has for his church still today. It's still there, the same thing that we're benefiting from today. And it causes them, and it should cause us, a new affection, a new love, a new patience, a new grace, a new mercy every day that is worth it. So we're called to live in the exact same way today as they were then. Right now, across any division you find within the church, I promise you it's worth the patience, the grace, the mercy to fight hard towards this unity, to not ignore it, but to go towards it, to receive difficult instruction sometimes, to receive a rebuke, to humbly and be, and be teachable, to allow this, this body of believers that we're a part of to be more deeply unified because of it. Because anything else is just going to separate us. And I think that's what's so amazing is that these guys get to greet and love and be, be in faith and display grace. And, and it's so unifying. And it's completely supernatural and not because of anything that we do, because of what I said in the beginning, that naturally we're inclined to isolate and hide in fear and to push people away. And this grace can really, really do amazing things. It can remove the emptiness within our speech. It can spur us towards good works, make us pure, according to this passage, This grace that is with us is sound doctrine, and it leads us towards godly living that is impossible for us to do alone. It says back in earlier in Titus, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This is the grace of God. This is what he's doing for his church through us, guys, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave him for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Back to the works. Back to the things we do. Back to who we are. Back to what we make our life about. God's grace calls us to declare these things, to exhort and rebuke with all authority. It calls us to submit and be submissive in all ways, to put his glory on display, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to live meekly and avoid godless living. God's grace truly surrounds us in a way that we can't even fathom. And I look at it this way in this very imperfect illustration, such as a fish in water doesn't even understand that the water is what's sustaining his very life. The grace of God is so surrounding us that we don't even know that it's holding us together, sustaining us to the point of keeping us from complete destruction. God loves his church. He sent his only son to die for her. He's already done everything possible that he could have done, and he wants his followers to join with him in that commitment, in that devotion in that fellowship together for her good. 
And this is why I say fellowship is God's love for the church. Because this is how God loves us. We cannot really experience God's love very well in many other ways. I'm sure we can experience God's love, God, God's love in our own personal devotion time. As we kind of sit and, and meditate on God's word, we do experience God's love in that way. But the point that I'm trying to drive home here is how much he loves us by unifying us into a new body with one another. Where we all came out of that selfish, uh, sinful isolation, he brings us into this new unified body where, where, we, where we can be devoted to one another and that is where we have true love that is put on display for the world, that adorns the doctrine. You know, even if God had designed the church or our faith in a way that we didn't have a church, we didn't have a unified body of believers, he probably would have, I'm sure, God is God and he's, he's good, he would have found a way for us to have been satisfied and fulfilled, but he didn't. And there's no sense in thinking about that, but I like to think of it in a contrary way for just a minute because it helps us to see that God designed our faith in a way that we are unified as a body of believers so that through that unification that we find, we see the love that God has for his church so beautifully put on display because of our differences and because of the way that we can work together hard and fight hard and be deeply invested in one another's lives. I can't really think of anything else to compare this to. And I tried hard, and I'm actually pretty good at analogies. <laughs> but <laughs> I tried so hard. I couldn't go to sleep last night thinking about this. But I did think of the military because in wartime, it is so absolutely crucial that you stay with your unit as a soldier. Because if you depart from that unit that you have been placed into by the, you know, by the wisdom of someone else above you, and you go it alone, and you think, I'm going to fight this war by myself. I, I know better. I'm going I'm to defeat that enemy by myself. You have no chance of survival whatsoever. And, or <laughs> you, 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 might be, you might be captured, you will be tortured, but you will probably die. Because you are not standing with your brothers and your sisters in the fight against sin in a unified way. Does that make sense? God has a better idea for his design for the church than we do, than we ever would have thought of. Church, this is to be lived out in unity, in the intimacy, in the devotion, as we fellowship together as a body of believers. We have that privilege to share in one another's lives to carry this command out. But you know what? We honestly don't deserve this. To be perfectly honest, we don't deserve it. We like to think we deserve better, but we don't. God could have left us right where we were in our sin. And better yet, in that sin, we deserve hell. Now, does that sound harsh? Because it's not. Because in our sin, and in our rebellion, and in our selfishness, and in our isolation, we are pushing God and everything he wants away from us. And in that, we deserve so much less than what he 
has given us. That's why I pray that we understand the grace that we have received through the church of Jesus Christ is so much more than we can even imagine. And, and I gleaned all of this right here out of the end of this little passage in Titus. So imagine how much more if we spend time together in other books of the Bible and doing the community group Bible studies that we do and meeting together as LTGs, spending time together as a church while serving the community around us, while living our life out. We, this is such a wonderful thing. These are the good works that we see in this passage. And this is what I want. This is what I hope you want. So partner with God in his love for the church. For the salvation of lost souls and the growing godliness of those around you. He changes lives. Causing us to pursue to pursue an ongoing faith that leads us to eternal life and trains godly leaders who are qualified to lead God's church who are able then to rebuke and sound a doctrine to lead us toward faith and good works in order that in all ways we, the church, adorn the doctrine of the Savior with godliness because the grace of God brings salvation for holy living. So respond to God and live submissive lives as you are blessed by God who has blessed you as heavenly heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Devote yourself to good works. Avoid foolishness and controversies and divisiveness and pursue gospel-centered unity displayed by good works. So as our gospel-devoted service in good fellowship is God's love for his church. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you have given us infinite mercy and grace and patience and love when we did not deserve even a thought of that. But Lord, it is your design to save us to bring us into unity of the church so that we might be a part of what you are doing across this entire globe for all eternity, bringing together a people for your own possession who are zealous for good works. Lord, I pray that we, we, we will get that more and more as we think about this passage and that we will come together throughout the, the days and weeks and months and even years ahead and be unified even when we have differences, be unified and strive hard after unity in the church. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.